0: Hi, everyone. It's George Stephanopoulos. I am so glad you chose Truth and Lies, The Informant, as your next listen. This podcast tells the harrowing true story of an ordinary man turned unlikely hero, a father and husband who risked it all to save the lives of total strangers targeted by hateful, homegrown extremists. After you listen, check out my documentary, The Informant, Fear and Faith in the Heartland. It's now streaming on Hulu. It features many of the people you'll hear in this series, including the host of this podcast, Dick Lair. Now, here's Truth and Lies, the informant, from ABC Audio.
1: This episode features secret FBI recordings that contain profanity and other offensive language. We're including them in their unedited form to convey the full impact of this hateful rhetoric.
2: I can make it look like a fucking accident, and kill a bunch of them motherfuckers, and not even
0: be involved?
1: In the summer of 2016, a group of men in rural southwest Kansas spent months forming a dangerous militia group, and plotting what could have been the worst domestic terror attack in U.S. history.
2: How much do you know about Muslims and Islam and them cockroaches and you know, get good
3: sons of Fact of the matter is there is no fucking good Muslim. There's only one good fucking kind of Muslim that's a dead motherfucker straight up.
1: This was recorded on July 9th, 2016, in the midst of a combative presidential election where Islamophobia sometimes took center stage.
0: I think Islam hates us. There's something, there's something there that there's a tremendous hatred.
1: And this is a story of one place that rhetoric spread to. I'm Dick Lair. I'm a journalist, a professor, and an author. I spent years researching this story from my book, White Hot Hate, a true story of domestic terrorism in America's heartland. And it's something I've talked about in the Hulu documentary, The Informant, Fear and Faith in the Heartland. What happened in Kansas should have been a major headline but it was sidelined by the chaos of 2016. Trump, Clinton, Brexit, the phrase fake news, Twitter outbursts. I was only vaguely aware of the story at the time, but then I met several of the Kansans who'd been in the thick of things. Right away, I knew their journey into the heart of darkness should be told. And now, After delving into thousands of pages of court documents, hundreds of hours of secretly recorded FBI tapes, and years of interviews later, here's the story of how hatred, white nationalism, and the spread of inflammatory rhetoric almost led to a horrific act of terrorism, one of the worst in our nation's history, if it hadn't been stopped.
4: It had the potential to kill a lot of people but it would have also changed the landscape of Southwest Kansas forever.
3: Well, it just would have, it would have completely shaken the foundation of America.
0: That would have been one of the most deadly acts of domestic terrorism ever in the United States.
1: From ABC Audio, this is Truth and Lies, The Informant. Episode one, There's No Place Like Home. Garden City, Kansas, a small, close-knit community situated in the southern Great Plains, where the seemingly endless expanse of cornfields and cattle feedlots are so flat and unobstructed, you can look across the horizon to where the sky touches the ground.
5: Well, it smells like cows and cow poop. I don't say that in a negative way. It's an agricultural town. Hey, yeah, the steak tastes good. <laughs>
1: Ifra Ahmed moved to Garden City in 2013. She was born in Somalia, only a few months before the country entered a civil war. Her family fled to Kenya once the war began, where they lived in a refugee camp. She attended high school, university, and eventually began translating at the camp. Somali to English, Somali to Swahili, you name it. She had spent almost all of her life in refugee camps, seeing others around her come and go. There was a long list of people waiting for visas to other countries. Occasionally, the names would be posted on a wall in the camp. If you saw your name, you had the opportunity to leave.
5: You see the excitement in people's eyes, and then you also see the disappointment in other people's eyes. So we get to a point where, like, we used to hardly look at it, so because this is our home.
1: We didn't... Until one day in 2012, when Ifrah was 25 years old,
5: a little girl came and she was like, oh, I heard somebody saying ifrah, I heard somebody saying ifrah, and I'm like, saying what, where? They're like, they posted your case. I'm like, no, no, they haven't. So we went to go see, and true enough, I was posted. And I think that was the happiest and the saddest day of my life.
1: Her name was posted, but her mother's name wasn't.
5: Part of me had decided that I wasn't going to come. Because I couldn't stomach the thought that this woman who had done everything for us, that we were going to leave her by herself.
1: Ifra's mom insisted she go, telling her that she was young and had so much opportunity ahead of her. It was time for Ifra to start living for herself. Later, someone from Citizenship and Immigration Services, or CIS, announced where Ifra and the other refugees would soon call home. They called her name, Ifrah Ahmed, you're going to Missouri.
5: I'm like, huh? Missouri.
1: Kansas City, Missouri. She'd never heard of that city or state before. But she did know a word that sounded familiar.
5: Missouri means good in Swahili. So I'm like, you know what, Ma? It says Missouri, so it must be good. And so I remember asking um, one of the... The CIS people who are working there. And and I asked him, uh, what what is in Missouri? What is famous for? And he said, I hear they have good barbecue. And I'm like, I don't know what barbecue is, but okay. And then he said, I hear tornadoes and Dorothy. And I'm like, what is Dorothy? No place like home. There's no place like
4: home. There's no
6: The
1: CIS worker was confusing Kansas City, Missouri for Kansas City, Kansas, made famous in the Judy Garland classic, The Wizard of Oz.
5: And it ended up being one of my favorite movies, actually. And it's like, I love fantasy. And I could somehow relate to Dorothy being out of her home and discovering this new world.
1: Aoife was devastated to leave her mother for this new world but she also felt excited for a new beginning, a new adventure. She was Dorothy being whisked away to a new magical land of Oz. But when Eva arrived in Kansas City, it didn't feel so magical. It felt incredibly lonely. She's outgoing with an easy, warm smile. There's a radiance about her and she thrived being around her Muslim community. But in Kansas City, she didn't have that. She was placed in a three-bedroom apartment with seven other women who came from all over. They spoke different languages and came from different backgrounds.
5: When I came here, many nights, like I would, go, I would cry my eyes out because one minute I had my family, I had my mother, I had my best friend. And one minute, it was just me, nobody else liked. I had no confidence. I had nobody to talk to. I had nobody to, I couldn't be myself. It was like part of a piece of my heart was just missing.
1: About five hours west of Kansas City, Missouri was Garden City, Kansas. Efer had a cousin who lived out there. And once she shared how lonely she felt, her cousin opened her doors and invited her to stay. And it turns out Garden City was a lot more magical than Kansas City.
5: Garden City is one of the most loveliest places that I have ever been. And I say that not because of, um, it's not fancy or like glamorous or everything, it's just the humility in it. It has one of the most kindest people that I've ever met and the diversity of it. You wouldn't think of Southwest Kansas being as diverse
1: until you see it. You do have to see it to believe it. Even here, in the middle of the heartland, surrounded by acres of unending fields, Garden City is what anthropologists have called an unlikely multicultural Mecca, attracting immigrants and refugees from around the world. And in recent years, a lot of those immigrants and refugees came from places like Somalia and Myanmar.
5: I am an immigrant and it was people that looked like me. It was people who had very similar
1: experience. Ephra stayed in Garden City. She found a job as a translator at a meatpacking plant, an apartment that she decorated with ornate rugs and pillows. As a finishing touch, she hung a home sweet home sign above her door. More importantly, she found the community she craved.
5: The people that are here are very close. For example, when when Ramadan comes, we have like a whole group of us that all break our fast together. We all go and celebrate Ramadan together. And it's like, but when I lived in Kansas City, I didn't have that. It was just, I break my fast by myself. I do my Ramadan by myself. And it was like, you get to be a part of something. And that is the fundamental thing about life. Because we as humans, we're social beings. We want to be a part of something. We want to belong somewhere. And having that sense of belonging I guess is what makes me love this place the most.
1: I think Efra's story of finding belonging here is one a lot of people who immigrated to Garden City can relate to. A whole quarter of the population is made up of immigrants. And a big draw for these immigrants the giant meatpacking plants where Efra worked. Garden City was always known as an agricultural city for its alfalfa, wheat, grain, and sugar beets. In the 1950s and 1960s, large cattle feedlots began popping up to supply the slaughterhouses. Tyson, a major employer in the area, slaughtered thousands of cows a day. Jobs at the meatpacking plants were plentiful. Immigrants from Mexico and other Latin American countries began to arrive. After the Vietnam War, Refugees from Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia started migrating to Garden City. Working in these meatpacking plants, it's gruesome, often dangerous. Severed fingers or worse are not unheard of, but it was work newcomers in search of a fresh start were ready to take on.
5: When, when you're a new refugee, you don't speak the language, you don't have um, a lot of education background, but... You have to survive in America, you have to work, you have to earn your bread. So what do you do when a lot of people come to the packing plants because you don't need any of that qualification, you don't need any job history, you don't need no language. You just need to come and do what you need to do.
1: Garden City had once been overwhelmingly white, but Latinos, Vietnamese, Somalis, and other immigrants transformed the city into the first minority-majority community in Kansas. But some people around town weren't comfortable with this kind of change, and they wanted to make it known.
5: Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games.
6: In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The bulletin board in the lobby of the Garden City Library much like anywhere else in America, is covered with the usual small-town notices. Babysitters for hire. Lawnmowers for sale. But in early July 2015, someone had added something new and definitely out of the ordinary. It was a brightly colored flyer nestled between the community updates. An unlikely poster that would become so much more.
4: According to Facebook... There was a posting that said that it had a Palestinian flag on it. And then it also said that there were people recruiting for ISIS at the library and that there was an ISIS flag.
1: That's Amy Kuhn. She's an FBI agent working out of Garden City. Some concerned citizens had called Amy's office to tell her about the poster, the one that was apparently recruiting for ISIS in their local library.
4: Obviously, if that's true, that's something we want to know about, and we want to determine who is in ISIS and what the problems are.
1: Small incidents like this were exactly what the agents wanted to keep their eye on. Big cases don't start big. Sometimes they start as small as a flyer on a bulletin board. When the FBI started investigating, they called Tony Mativi an assistant U.S. attorney based in Topeka.
0: And during that time, I don't know what it is about Kansas, but we've had a a number of very significant uh, national security cases. Tony should know. He prosecuted
1: two separate cases involving homegrown jihadi terrorists. One plotted to blow up a truck at an airport in Wichita. The other tried to drive a truck bomb into a hospital on a military base. Both were American-born men who had converted to Islam and claimed they were committed to carrying out high-fatality attacks in its name.
0: We had a number of al-Qaeda cases, and then they tapered off, and then we had a number of ISIS, you know, homegrown violent extremist-type investigations, and then that sort of tapered off. After these high-profile cases,
1: the FBI took the idea of further terrorist threats seriously, but were concerned about Islamic plots in particular. But that wasn't all they were worried about.
0: We were seeing a lot of investigative activity in Kansas where the agents are monitoring um, organizations that are potentially white supremacists, potentially domestic terror organizations. There, there were, at the time, were just a lot of those going on. Nationwide,
1: instances of right-wing violence were rising fast, far beyond any threat posed by Muslim Americans. Between 1994 and 2020, more than half of all domestic terrorism plots were planned by right-wing extremists. By contrast, Muslim terrorists were responsible for far fewer, around 15%. But since 9-11, the idea of Islam-inspired terrorism had occupied an outsized space in the minds of the FBI and the general public. And now there was a presidential election looming on the horizon. Some politicians were lumping all Muslims together in a box labeled terrorist. Militia groups emboldened and encouraged by the polarizing political environment also had their eye on Muslim communities. Many militias talked about their fear of replacement, of Sharia law sweeping the country, a new world order run by the Muslim Brotherhood. These groups saw Muslims as the enemy hiding in plain sight in America, and their frustration was growing.
0: Prosecutor Tony Mateevi again. You had a segment of society that was focused on those Muslims as bad, and they felt the government wasn't doing enough to keep them from immigrating to the United States. They were The government was allowing too many of them in, and that... They were responsible for a lot of problems that we were having in the country. That's what a lot of this discussion was among these militia organizations.
1: In Garden City, where people said hello to their neighbors, where they celebrated the wealth of beef and the freedom of the wide-open prairies, it wasn't immune to what was happening around the country. Far from it. Which brings us back to that flyer the one that spurred a rumor on Facebook about an ISIS recruiting drive in Garden City. It was worrying. Whoever called the FBI office thought it could be more than a rumor. They didn't take it lightly, and neither did the FBI.
3: Um, My name is Robin Smith. I was formerly a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation.
1: Robin was Amy's crime-fighting partner one half of the investigating force trying to get to the bottom of the mysterious flyer. He's a native Kansan, at home among the people and plains around their Garden City office. Between them, Amy and Robin covered a vast area throughout western Kansas and into Colorado. And where they are, it has an effect on how they work.
3: So, generally, we're not in the office as much as we are out. And that tends to make your office be behind the windshield of, of your
1: vehicle. Investigating across the Great Plains often takes them to fields and farms all over the state. They talk the talk and walk the walk, and it's common to find them in jeans and cowboy boots if that's what the day demands. Even if they look like they'd be more at home on a ranch than in an interview room, they're conscious of their role manning the FBI outpost in the Plains. I grew up in a Christian home, and... That upbringing led me to
3: believe in the rule of law, and equality among all of us, and a deep, deep sense of patriotism and commitment to the United States. Amy is exactly the same, only shorter. She's deeply passionate about her work as an agent and the reasons for it, and she also very much believes in trying to make the world a better place.
4: He's a talker, so and I like to talk as well, but I would say I don't know anyone that likes to talk as much as Robin.
1: (laughs) Amy and Robin had a rhythm to their work, despite the geographic challenges. Robin's older than Amy. He'd worked with other agents before her, but he respected her and the feeling was mutual. Now they had a new problem to solve, the Facebook post about the flyer in the library. It had gone small town viral. They had to figure out how much was truth and how much was social media nonsense. In a small town like Garden City, it didn't take the agents long to track down the person who had seen the flyer in the library.
2: I'm Dan Day, and I'm
1: 51 years old. Danny Ray Day, a Garden City man, born
2: and raised. come from a large family. You know, I grew up a, a kind of a country boy, uh, hunting, fooling.
1: Dan and Ifra Ahmed have something in common. When he was younger, Dan had also worked in the meatpacking plant. It seemed everybody growing up in Garden City did time at the plant at one point or another. Dan had only lived outside the town once. When he was newly married, he moved to Oklahoma, but came back to Kansas soon after. Garden City was home. Dan didn't even know there were FBI agents in Garden City. That was, until his phone buzzed. His friend was calling to invite him over, like, right now.
2: And I, I that sounds was kind of strange, but I was like, yeah, okay. And I went over there, and... To my surprise, there were two FBI agents waiting for me. He looked um,
3: not frightened, but wary, and was definitely surprised.
1: Robin and Amy introduced themselves, and they began to ask Dan questions about the flyer.
2: So um, they, uh, they just came out and they asked me, do you know where this came from? And I told them the truth, yeah, I got it from the library.
1: Dan explained that he had seen the flyer after accompanying his son Brandon on his morning workout, running laps in a local park. It was blazing hot, and when they finished, they'd headed to the library nearby to take advantage of its A.C. and water fountains. It was all part of their routine since Dan had lost his job the year before. Brandon would work out, and then they'd cool off in the library, maybe sit for a while at the computers, read the news, and catch up on the sports scores. Dan had noticed the brightly colored flyer on the bulletin board. The image on it stood out a Palestinian flag.
2: It was something to do with Palestine and uh, Israel, taking over Israel. And in my opinion, Israel was God's country. Above and below the flag was the message stop Israel
1: and let Palestine become a free state. Dan's views on politics foreign or domestic, were far from single track. His media diet ran the gamut, from the larger news outlets like CNN, MSNBC, Fox, to sites like Breitbart. He would even, on occasion, listen to Alex Jones's radio show. Dan would shake his head in disbelief at the things that came out of Jones's mouth. Conspiracy theories run amok. He remembered hearing Jones espouse the idea that the federal government was building a network of tunnels under Walmarts across Texas. Apparently, the plan was to hide federal troops in these tunnels and then stage a state takeover. Dan thought it was ridiculous. Dan read widely. He liked to know what was happening in the world, and he wasn't neutral there were some issues he felt strongly about. Israeli statehood was one of them. So when he spotted that pro-Palestine poster in the library,
2: it got under his skin. Whoever put it up, they had the right to put that up. I had the right to take it down, in my opinion, so I did.
1: And Dan didn't stop there. There was someone he thought would be interested in the poster. An old colleague from his days working in a juvenile corrections facility, Terrence Taylor. He wasn't a close friend, but they'd recently reconnected through Facebook. Terrence's online persona was much like Dan's recollections of how he was in person, a little over the top. On his page, there were exaggerated denunciations of immigrants and photos of flag-waving, muscle-bound white men dressed in camo, armed with AK-47s. When Dan told him about the flyer, Terrence asked if he could make a copy at the library, but Dan told him he could save the 10 cents on the copier.
2: And I was like, you yeah, have it, I don't want it. And so he invited uh, me and my son over to barbecue the next day.
1: That sounded pretty good to Dan. He wasn't the type of guy to turn down a free meal at the best of times. And money was tight in the day household since he lost his job. So the next afternoon, a sunny Saturday, Dan arrives at Terence's
2: house with his son, Brandon. So we got there and there's a big sign in the front yard, uh, welcome three percenters. And I wasn't really sure what a three
1: percenter was. Dan and Brandon walk around to the backyard and find a bunch of camo clad men drinking beer and grilling meat. Plenty of people are open carrying Dan's fine with that. He always had a gun with him too, a pocket carry. He felt naked without one. Some of these guys are showing off though, waving their weapons while they talk shop. But then there's a moment, something Dan doesn't like one bit. As he's talking, one of the men accidentally points a gun in Dan's direction. And I was like, no, you know, you don't do that. (laughs) Every gun's loaded. Every gun is loaded. That was a lesson drilled into him by his father, who died when Dan was just five years old. Dan remembers very clearly his father's lessons about guns, especially the time his dad took him target shooting to a remote spot on the dry Arkansas riverbed. As Dan watched, his father took aim at a broken-down truck and fired, spelling out his name in bullet holes. His father then handed him the gun and allowed Dan to pull the trigger. The power of the gun shook his whole body. Guns were fun, but guns were serious too. Dan's father was strict about that and he spelled out the cardinal rules of gun safety, imprinting them on Dan. Rule number one, always treat a gun as if it is loaded. Number two, don't point a gun at anything you don't plan to kill. And number three, red equals dead, meaning that if you can see the red indicator, the safety is off. For Dan, guns are a right, and the Second Amendment is sacred. But you still have to play by the rules.
2: you know, in my view, guns don't kill people. People kill people.
1: And at Terrence's barbecue, Dan listens to the men talk about the overreach of the government. And he thinks about the sign on the lawn, "Welcome, three percenters." Then reality dawns: this isn't a family and friends cookout; it's a recruitment meeting for a militia group.
2: Well, I, it kind of caught me off guard, and I was kind of, I, I was, I was kind of pissed that you know my friends were not telling me this, just thinking it was just a regular barbecue, and you know bring my son and. Uh, and I get there, and it's, it's more than that, you know.
1: Dan isn't happy with Terrence, but he's more annoyed than scared. Militias weren't all bad in Dan's eyes.
2: Um, just like anything, there's bad people in everything. But overall, it's, you know, their right to protect the Constitution. The group at Terrence's
1: is beginning to get animated. And the conversation circles around a lot of the same issues.
2: They hated the government. They hated the FBI. Um, they hated Obama. But they, you know, they, were, they had concerns about
1: ISIS. Dan worried about ISIS too. He'd heard there were ISIS soft cells in the U.S., even in Kansas. And the talk around the barbecue was about trouble even closer to home—the Somalis in Garden City.
2: They didn't trust the, Muslim, the uh, Somalians. They thought, you know, if they weren't ISIS, they were either helping the ISIS, you know, either by, you know, uh, supporting them financially or some way. While Dan and his son, Brandon, make small
1: talk, Terence joins them. He wants to introduce someone Dan doesn't recognize, Jason Crick. He's from the town over and explains to Dan that he was responsible for founding this chapter of the Three Percenters a few months ago. The name Three Percenters comes from the idea that when the American colonists overthrew the British in the 1700s, that only 3% of the colonists signed up as an active fighting force to defeat the enemy. It's not true. But the falsehood contains an attractive message about the power of the few over the many. Jason and some like-minded people had gravitated toward each other and found that they agreed on some fundamental issues. Obama is still president. Jason thinks the entire presidency has been a disaster. He accuses Obama of opening the floodgates to immigrants, terrorists, Islamic extremists. Jason has some vague and ominous premonitions about what the future holds, and none of it is good could even be looking at a government takeover. That's why a militia is needed. It's their job to defend ordinary Americans, to keep an eye on the threats the government refused to deal with. Patriots have to stick together. A little while later, Jason Cripp gives the same recruitment speech to the whole group. But this time, he pulls out a sheet of paper and waves it around as he speaks. It's the flyer with a Palestinian flag on it. This is exactly what they were fighting, Jason says. This is Islamic fundamentalism right here in Garden City. He claims that there had been an ISIS recruitment sheet accompanying the flyer, and it had been guarded by
2: local Somalis. I was like, "What? Are you serious?" And then I started putting two, two you know, two and two together, and I realized they had taken the poster that I'd found, added their own, their own, you know rumors, and uh, people were believing it, and people were, you know, ISIS in our community, you know, we got to get fired them up. Jason's
1: audience is more than fired up. This is a call to action. There's talk among the crowd. Some suggest organizing surveillance of the Somali community in Garden City. Others take pictures of the flyer on their phones to share, repost, and forward. The story of what had happened takes a backseat to something much more urgent, more inflammatory. It's like a game of telephone. To Dan, Jason's twisted version of the story, conflating a pro Palestinian flyer with an ISIS threat, was like listening to Alex Jones talk about tunnels under Walmart. And as he gave his account to Amy and Robin at Terrence's house a few days later, it was clear to the agents that Dan had stumbled upon something that made him uncomfortable. He
3: said, you know, I'm, I'm like-minded to these folks, and I'm interested in being in a militia. I'm interested in, uh, in their patriotism and their concerns about the immigrant community and terrorism here in southwest Kansas. So he wanted to communicate with them, but he was taken aback at the anger level, I think.
1: Dan's explanation diffused any worry about a potential ISIS soft cell, but it had wakened another concern about the militia itself. It wasn't a false alarm. If the militia were capable of organizing surveillance of the Somali community, it was beginning to tread on the fine line between free speech and harassment. When they left Terrence's house that afternoon, Amy Kuhn had a feeling about Dan. She wondered aloud to Robin about recruiting him as a source for the FBI. And I looked at her, I cocked my head a little bit, I said, really, that guy? Dan made a very different impression on Robin during their first meeting. What was my first impression of Dan Day?
3: That Dan seemed kind of to fit the mold of, okay, yeah, I can see this guy being in a militia group. and that's awfully stereotypical of me, but
1: that's what you're asking. But Amy saw something else. She saw someone who would be useful. When
4: I am looking to get information from anybody, one of the main things is, are they gonna be honest with me? Because if they aren't, then I can't trust what they tell me and I can't trust to use them in an investigation by themselves. At one point, when we were talking to Dan, He said something and then he stopped and he corrected himself. And he's like, well, that's not this is more how it happened. And so I recognized the fact that he was trying to be honest with us.
1: Dan's honesty was one thing and he could blend in. He was white, stocky, middle aged. He didn't look out of place. After all, Robin had pegged him as a militia man from the moment they met. He could avoid the suspicion of other group members, talk to them in a way that an FBI agent, even one from southwest Kansas, could not. Amy invited Dan for another meeting. This time it would be just the three of them, Robin, Amy, and Dan. And it would be at the FBI office in Garden City. If a place was trying not to be a place, the FBI office was doing a very good job of it. It was in a low, red-brick building on the edge of town, sandwiched between a family dentist and a chiropractor's office. The windows were mirrored, allowing those inside to see but never be seen. The door was locked, so Dan had to be buzzed in. Amy and Robin were there to welcome him, taking him to a windowless conference room in the back. This time, things felt more relaxed. The agents assured Dan that they weren't accusing him of anything. They just wanted to know more about what happened at Terrence's barbecue. Dan described the meeting again, the three percenters, Jason Crick, and the conversations he heard. Now on their own turf, the agents were able to gently probe Dan on how much of a risk the three percenters might be.
4: I told him that we were interested in any information that he might have of people that he was concerned with in within the militia setting that might be a little out there and wanting to do other people harm.
2: And they asked me if I was going to join the militia, and um, I was like, "Man, I ain't going to join these guys. These guys are these guys are lunatics, man." I was curious, you know, but I still wasn't going to join.
4: Also explained to Dan that I was interested if the militia group found activity that they were concerned about where they did have ties to Al Qaeda or ISIS we'd also be interested in that information.
2: And they asked me you know would you would you join them and just kind of follow them around and if you see anything looks looks uh, suspicious or against the law, doing anything, you know, just report back to us.
4: It would be helpful for us to know what's going on in Southwest Kansas and who to be concerned about.
2: And I was, I was like, uh, yeah, I, I could do that, you know. Um, sometimes I'm a little bit of a, I like a little bit of excitement once in a while.
1: I would end up spending a lot of time with Dan Day. I'd visit Garden City for a few days at a time, getting to know him. Sometimes we'd meet in the park outside the city zoo, or we'd drive around in his pickup truck, or we'd meet in the library, where he showed me the bulletin board where the flyer starting everything had hung. I recorded our conversations, accumulating a mountain of tapes. I felt like part of his world for a time.
2: He had an AR-15. What's an AR-15? A lot of people think they are things for assault rifle. Okay. But it, no, it's not. Okay. I got one.
1: During these trips and on the phone, we spent countless hours talking, going over the events that would overtake his life for more time than he'd bargained for. And when we talked about what happened next, once he'd signed on to be the FBI's inside man, I was left amazed by his sense of duty, this ordinary guy taking such an extraordinary leap of faith into the unknown, the risks he would take. Because this was a moment where Dan Day could have walked away, told the FBI, no thank you. But he didn't.
2: I thought it might be the right thing to do. If I knew how it was going to turn out, honestly, I might not have. Uh, I hope I would have, but uh, you know, who knows.
1: Dan had taken the first steps on a journey that would shape not only his life, but the lives of hundreds of residents in Garden City.
5: No idea that people can be so hateful, so bluntly hateful.
1: And Dan was about to jump headfirst into a deep, dark pool—a pool of hate that threatened to swallow the small town he knew so well, and himself along with it. He'd be swimming alone, bringing what he saw and heard to the FBI.
3: Ask yourself, would you be willing to do what he did? Would you be willing to risk what he
6: risked?
1: Truth and Lies, The Informant. It's a production of ABC Audio and contains reporting and interviews conducted by George Stephanopoulos Productions for the documentary, The Informant, Fear and Faith in the Heartland, streaming now on Hulu. This podcast was written and produced by Karian Thomas, Madeline Wood, Marwa Mowaki, and Cameron Shatavian. Additional production by Eru Ekpanobi, Audrey Mostek and Nania McLean. Our supervising producers were Susie Liu and Sasha Aslanian. Our story consultants were Chris Donovan and Amon McNiff of George Stephanopoulos Productions. Music by Evan Viola, scoring and mixing by Evan Viola and Rob Galane. Special thanks to George Stephanopoulos, Jennifer Joseph, Joe Park, Mike Levine, Monica De La Rosa. Brenda Salinas-Baker, Josh Cohan, and Liz Alessi.
0: As in previous campaigns,
1: it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning.
2: First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid.
5: It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid.
6: It's the
1: hair, stupid.
6: In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.